Hello, Podshot crew. It's Stephen from Scouted Football. Seb and the Alexes have been extremely kind to give me a slot on their show to let you all know about the big crowdfunding campaign we've got going over at Scouted as we relaunch our print magazine. We've got heaps of things planned for it, with profiles on some of our favourite up-and-coming youngsters, including Rasmus Hoyland, Ivan Fresneda, Gabri Vega and Alex Scott, as well as features on a wide range of interesting topics and a beautiful cover graced by Enzo Fernandez. Understandably, if you don't want to buy a magazine with a Chelsea player on the front, we've also got you sorted with an Argentina-themed hardcover edition as well. For more information, there'll be a link to our Kickstarter campaign as well as our Twitter in the podcast description. But be quick, the campaign will end on July 5. Hello, and welcome to Podshot. Uh, I'm Sebastian Hund. Uh, this is not Alex Tals and not Alex Collings. I will be doing the hosting today. And that is because this is a new series, which we are starting over the summer, in which we are doing a slightly shorter discussion on the new players coming into Arsenal and talking to people who have seen these players uh, play firsthand. So this first of what I assume to be a few podcasts on new signings is about Kai Havertz, who just joined us uh, in the midst of the Declan Rice limbo we are currently finding ourselves in. Uh, And with us to do this is Orlando. Orlando is uh, a Chelsea fan and the co-founder and podcaster at the Chelsea Spot. Orlando, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. How is it not having to watch Chelsea for a few months? It's very nice, to be honest, um, given the season that we've just had. Um, I was hoping for a bit of a rest period in the kind of off-season, but that hasn't really happened with all the transfer activity, which has been going on a little bit wild. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the new season. I think I think we it's looking quite promising, actually. We've managed to get rid of a lot of uh players that needed getting rid of so yeah it's looking up i think wonderful now let's just jump straight in um chelsea signed kai Havertz in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic um and i suppose my first question is what was your perception of kai Havertz when he joined from leverkusen as the sort of statement signing really of the entire summer that year yeah i was really excited um, I had watched quite a lot of him at Leverkusen. I saw him as someone who could fit into the Chelsea team in a variety of ways because obviously he had played largely at Leverkusen as a number 10 and done really, really well there. But he had also played quite a lot as a number nine, um, especially actually during the lockdown itself, I think. Um, and he had played deeper in midfield at times and also for um, Germany teams. Um, so, yeah, I was really excited and when he first came in, um, obviously it was at the same time as Timo Werner. And I remember everyone saying, oh, well, Werner, he scored all these goals in the Bundesliga. He's going to be, he's going to be great. There's no worries about him. And people were more worried about Havertz, but I was actually the other way around. I was a bit more worried about how Werner would translate or how his strengths would translate to the Premier League. Um, whereas I thought Havertz would be fine because he's got such, um, physical attributes um, and he can kind of hurt the opposition in quite a lot of different ways. It's kind of hard to say whether that really ended up being true because there are a lot of different ways you could look at Havertz's time at Chelsea. I think, I mean, he's definitely didn't really live up to all the expectations that came with the £72 million price tag. 
but he was also effective and for some periods Chelsea's best attacker and I also think he was quite misused for 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 quite a lot of his time at Chelsea yeah this is an interesting question I have had myself would you say that Chelsea necessarily had a plan on how to use Kai Havertz when they signed him because even if we look back at the reporting at that time Real Madrid were interested in him couldn't sign him because of the pandemic Uh, other clubs, I think Barcelona, were also uh, looking at him back then. And Chelsea swooped in and it sort of seemed like it was more opportunistic than a signing they had been planning for a long time. Would you say this was something they had planned or something they were accommodating because one of the hottest prospects came on the market? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I think in general, the last, most of the last Chelsea signings in the last four or five years have been opportunistic unfortunately um there there hasn't been that much of a plan in general but I do actually think I think Frank Lampard was the manager who did have the clearest plan if you can call it that um whether he executed it that well is a different question but I do think one of his biggest strengths as a manager was player profiling and understanding where players what players are and how they fit into different systems And he was using Kai Havertz as a midfielder, as a number eight, really. But I think the problem with that was when he first came to the Premier League, obviously there is kind of an added level of physicality, an added level of intensity, and just an, you know, a higher level of opposition in general. And I think what Havertz struggled with, I think, I think Lampard was right that he was best suited as a midfielder in the Premier League, but I think more in the long term. And I think he might have needed to have played a bit further ahead of the ball when he first came in, just to kind of acclimatize. Um, but what actually ended up happen, happening during his time at Chelsea is that it kind of went in the other direction, which was quite weird. So he yeah. started off as a midfielder and as the time moved on, he moved for further and further forward. Tuchel was playing him mainly as, well, at first kind of like as a number 10 in that narrow front three but then also just as a number nine and then uh since Tuchel left with Graham Potter and Frank Lampard point two um he was used almost exclusively as a as a number nine so and I do think he's quite good as a number nine and there are lots of things you get from him that are really valuable and useful to the team but I don't think it makes the most of probably his greatest asset which is arriving in the box to score goals like arriving not being there already you know and I think he needs to be able to play deeper and he needs to be able to get on the ball a little bit more because what often happened when he was playing at number nine for Chelsea is he would just drop deep to try and get on the ball he would he would drift out position which is you know it's okay for a striker but it ended it ended up meaning that we had very little focal point and I think I mean that's a little bit similar to what Jesus does for Arsenal at times so um, you can see how he might fit there um, but really I think all this goes to show that he can play in different roles and I think I've seen all these people on Twitter saying he's an eight he's a nine he's a ten he's this and he's that and realistically these numbers they're just like roles on a football pitch and no player is this or that yeah You gave us a nice overview there of his sort of time at Chelsea and the different roles he had under different managers. I'd like to sort of drill into that a little bit uh, because through that lens, I think we can deduce the 
attributes he has quite well. Uh, so he came in in 2020 under Frank Lampard. That was the first half of the 2021 season. Obviously, that ended relatively badly, which then led to Frank Lampard having to go and Thomas Tuchel coming in. Um, how did the sort of general disposition of Chelsea, technically speaking, and Harvard's role specifically uh, change once Thomas Tuchel came in, in that final part of the 2021 season leading up to the Champions League final? Yeah, so as soon as Tuchel came in, he completely changed uh, the system. He moved to a back three, a sort of 3-4-2-1, if you want to call it that. Um, pretty early on in Tuchel's tenure, um, he started playing Havertz as the number nine. And I think the style of play was quite well suited to him because it was a very sort of slow build-up. Um, it was quite pragmatic. There wasn't... It was it allowed Havertz to sort of drift and find spaces and play one twos and this sort of thing, um, and he wasn't tasked so much with long balls or kind of straight balls into his feet, having to hold anything up or, or running in behind. It was more kind of a, a drifty striker role, um, which I think suit, suited him quite well. Things changed that summer. Uh quite significantly because obviously uh, Romelu Lukaku came in and that sort of changed the, the the entire construction of the team again. Could you explain to us how that sort of shook out? Yeah, so at first he he worked really well with Lukaku because while at Chelsea he had often been used to sort of being that focal point and being that guy that other attackers play off of and instead he was able to use Lukaku as that focal point and I think I think that at first suited him really well but what ended up happening was in order for the team to accommodate to Lukaku who was quite static didn't press that much the the style of play shifted a lot to the team's detriment um, and it was kind of just like circulate the ball until you get a crossing opportunity um, and I think Havertz basically just suffered as a result. Yeah. And the second half of that season was where Havertz, I think, played most pronounced as a sort of center forward in a more traditional sense. Uh, could you say how that sort of worked for him, considering who he is as a player and how he was used in that season or the second half of that season where he was playing a very, very defined center forward role? It's hard to say. He he got a lot of flack from Chelsea fans. He got a lot of criticism, which I think was partly deserved and partly not deserved. I think he suffered a lot from unlucky finishing. Um, I think he got himself into quite a lot of good positions and his finishing let him down, which is not really... He's not a particularly bad finisher. He's He's just kind of an average finisher, but he just kind of got on the wrong side of variance in that period. And that really hurt him because it did seem sort of in in open play that he wasn't contributing very much um and i think partly that was through no fault of his own no fault of his own i don't think he was very suited to being that kind of traditional number nine as you say but i think also he i don't know he seemed a little bit sort of um reluctant to fulfill that role um, which which is maybe telling um, in that it doesn't suit him as well. I think he's definitely 
I mean, this is a bit of a lazy comparison, but I think as a number nine, he's a number nine much more in the mould of someone like Bobby Firmino rather than Romelu Lukaku. Someone who, who wants to drift, who will drop deep, who will do sort of flicks and one-twos. Um, and he's not really someone you want to just be aiming crosses at or using uh, to hold up the ball because as much as he is quite a big physical presence, he's not very good at hold-up play. Um, he's he's he his his um yeah balance when holding up the ball isn't the best he falls over quite a lot um and i think he's yeah as i said towards the beginning of the podcast he's much better suited to kind of running onto the ball from from a position of being behind it rather than ahead of it yeah that that's something i wanted to come on to because i share that same opinion where he struggles with contact, I feel like, especially when yeah. playing as in, in the last line. And his finishing is far better when he doesn't feel contact and just arrives and Absolutely. sort of finishes with a single action as opposed to having to tussle with defenders and sort of generate a shot that way. Using what we've just talked about and the different roles he has fulfilled, what would you say would be if you could draw it up on a football pitch without sort of thinking about the permutations of the rest of the team, what would Kai Havertz's optimal role, both in terms of which zones he occupies and what functions he has towards the team, be? In Ars at Arsenal or just in general? In in general, just um, what what's the sort of best zones to sort of play in and his, his the attributes that lend themselves most to performance from him specifically i think sort of a an forward thinking right-sided number eight or or more of a number 10 um but it really depends on the rest of the team i think he definitely thrives in that kind of right half space he's you know pretty strongly left-footed he likes to cut in um he's got quite good shooting from distance um and yeah, he, I think, I do think his best role can be a sort of a number nine, but it really has to be a number nine who plays with wide forwards who score lots of goals and who get in lots of goal-scoring positions and who occupy centre-backs. Um, and, you know, that, that could end up being the case at Arsenal. I think one area that he can and does need to improve in um, when he's playing deeper in the pitch is just defensively in general. I think he's, he, he, um, his pressing is quite good, but in terms of playing in midfield, he, um, he can be very weak in challenges. Um, he can walk quite a lot. Um, and I think especially thinking about Arsenal, lots of people saying that he's going to be played in the midfield alongside Odegaard and Rice. I think he will need to improve defensively because that's to play him with another full, like mainly forward thinking number eight is quite a bold move, no matter how defensively strong Rice might be. Would you say there is a sort of noticeable difference in his performance depending on which side of the field he's on? So how, how does his role change when he sort of works in the left-hand side rather than the right-hand side? Yeah, I, I definitely would say there's a noticeable difference. I think 
although I said I think he's better on the right, I think it, it depends sort of uh, which third of the pitch as well. Because as I alluded to before, when he was playing on the left side, left hand side of a kind of narrow front three, I think that suited him really well because he was able to drift and it wasn't the focus wasn't so much on like direct ball progression. It was more on kind of just tying things together and and being an outlet and um and combination play which he's he's actually very good at um but when he's playing deeper as a number eight i think he's much much better on the right hand side because it's it's basically just really to do with the fact that he's very strongly left-footed i think he um in terms of playing balls out to the fullback on his right hand side or the winger um the the angles that he uses um are just much more conducive to to kind of well-weighted passes uh, on the right-hand side and on the left. What would you say his biggest weaknesses he's shown in the Premier League have been? Mm. I think one of the things you mentioned earlier uh, was a very good point, that he struggles with contact. Um, so a big weakness is that he is actually quite weak, um, like physically. Um, considering his size, I think he could be a lot more sturdy um and i would say also he can really drift through games he can be become a bit of a passenger he can um he, he the way his way of moving is very very languid um and i think people sometimes misinterpret that as laziness or um not kind of giving his all and i think that's incorrect i think he does you know he always tries his hardest or whatever but i think sometimes it's more that he just um yeah he struggles to impose himself on games at times to finally bring this back to the reason we even speak about him here is because he's now an arsenal player um what would you say you see as where he would fit in into the sort of tactical setup as we know it now uh, at arsenal Well, I think, as I said, I've seen lots of people on Twitter saying he will be the left eight and, and this kind of thing. And I think that is, well, if that is true, I'm interested to see how it works because I personally, I'm not so convinced. I think he can play there, especially in games where Arsenal are going to be completely dominant and play against low blocks, um, which to be fair is going to be quite a lot of Premier League games. But I think from a wider perspective looking across the whole season i think havertz is just a good signing in terms of um adding someone to the squad who can offer different options in positions that are already quite um well equipped so i think he can be a really good alternative to gabriel jesus as that number nine i think he, he offers something well it's interesting because he offers something very different in terms of a more physical presence and um and someone who can occupy the center backs a bit better and but at the same time the sort of drifting that Jesus does and the and the combination play um that's something that that Havertz will be able to do as well so i think it's quite a it's a nice um alternative to have um and i i think i think i'm right in saying that Arteta has been on the look on the lookout for a kind of more physical striker for quite a long time um and then i also think um 
in that num that right hand side number eight position where Odegaard plays, um, I think he could do a really really good job. I I don't follow Arsenal closely enough to know if this would really be an option, but I think it would be more likely or potentially more um, effective to have Havertz on the right and Odegaard on the left in in that midfield three, just because Odegaard's a lot more um, defensively strong and robust and and better in in the counter press and so on. Um, yeah, as I said, I think I'm not sure whether Havertz will be a kind of guaranteed starter in every game uh, because I'm unsure as of yet how exactly he clearly fits into the system. Um, but I do think in general he's a pretty good signing because he adds something to the squad that Arsenal really don't have. There was an interesting indicator in the welcome message Arsenal put out on him with Mikel Arteta saying he will be a sort of someone who can give us strength in our midfield. And that's uh, a specification that isn't necessarily usual in these kind of uh, opening statements. Um, but something I found out while preparing for this podcast is if you look at the sort of statistical uh, rundown of Grand Chaka's season and sort of the role he played. He had by far the least touches of his Arsenal career. He played higher than he's ever played before and oftentimes was a low touch, sometimes combining uh, midfield player whose large sort of best situation was crashing into the box and sort of occupying spaces that others leave. So, for example, when uh, Gabriel Jesus comes deep to link up play, Granit Xhaka would often drift into the centre forward position and so on and so on. Um, and that's on the ball, that's a role that I could see Kai Havertz playing. I think the big headache uh, all of us have had collectively is how you would accommodate Havertz and Odegaard in a midfield when we don't have the ball and the sort of initial counter press is broken and we have to retreat into a sort of mid to low block. Um, considering Havertz has never necessarily played the role of being a second pivot behind the ball when we don't have uh, when his team doesn't have the ball, and adding to that the fact that Martin Odegaard has extreme value out of possession through being the player that sort of dictates the press and organizes it from the front. That's a sort of conundrum that none of us have been able to solve. What would your perspective on that be? Well, I think it's not out of the question that he could learn to perform that role. I don't think it's necessarily something that suits him amazingly. But as I was saying earlier in the podcast, like that's that's how football works. You, you play roles as a player that don't necessarily suit you amazingly, but you do it to benefit the team. And you do it because you can, because you're a good football player. And I think it is something that he could potentially learn. I think he's not really had to do that much defending throughout his career, really. I think you know, Leverkusen were a relatively dominant team in the period he was there. Um, Chelsea as well. Um, so I think... But I mean, what he's shown in his ability to press from the front. I mean, he, he presses intelligently, he presses hard, 
he he has a good understanding of angles and 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 triggers and so on and i think he yeah i mean he has the body for it as well to be able to screen passes he has the kind of the long legs and the uh he has the awareness too um i'm just slightly skeptical that he would be able to take in all that information so quickly i mean if you're asking him to begin playing that role from the start of the season i don't i don't know how ready he'd be but i do think it's possible that he could in time adapt to that role yeah just finally i'd like to ask a more sort of soft factor based question um the three years that Havertz was at chelsea strike me as three of the most chaotic years a professional football player can have from having to play under frank lampard which is a thing in of itself um to uh change of manager to thomas tuchel to winning the champions league to the mental pressure that imposes upon a player once you have sort of achieved something like that to then the second season, the Lukaku signing itself and the fallout from that and him having to change his role because of that, uh, culminating in the sanctions, the change of ownership, the entire sort of media drama that came with Todd Bowley and the transfer windows Chelsea have had since, as well as just the manager change and the very, very toxic end to, of the uh, Graham Potter era where things seemed, especially from the outside, really bad that seems to me like something that can take a toll on a player and Kai Havertz specifically strikes me as someone who is sort of reflective and sort of works better in an environment where he feels sort of settled and um, at home so to speak would you say that those things are true and sort of how much a more stable environment could benefit Kai Havertz. Yeah, I think also one of the things that you didn't mention and I forgot to mention too earlier is that he was one of the first players in the Premier League to get COVID quite badly. And yeah. he's spoken about how he's been affected he, he got by long, long COVID, COVID. Didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I don't I think he spoke relatively recently about how that still affects him. So um yeah, that's that's a challenge as well for an athlete. Um but I think I think certainly what you say, like in terms of having more of an individual development plan and being signed with a really, really clear um, idea um, of how he fits into the team and what he needs to do in order to be able to carry out that role more effectively, I think that will be something that he didn't necessarily have at Chelsea. Um, and even if he did have it when he first signed with Lampard, that didn't last very long, right? Um, so yeah. with every new manager, he sort of just had to, you know, throughout this podcast, I've said quite a few times about how he's, he was playing this role for the team. He was playing this role just because of the squad and so on and so forth. And I think having a sort of place in the squad that's more sort of specifically tailored for him and just in a club under a manager with so much more stability, I think I, I agree with you that this is particularly the place uh, the case with a player like Havertz that it will do him good but I think it would do any player good right the, the, the difference is any young developing player um, I think 
yeah, this just kind of goes to show the shambles that Chelsea have been recently. Um, but I think, no, I think you're right. Havertz is someone who, I mean, we forget how young he is, right? He came, he, he made his debut at Leverkusen. He, he became a regular so early that um, people forgot. I mean, he's younger than Mason Mount, for example. Um, and I think, yeah, people don't necessarily realize that. And he's still got a lot of developing to do. Um, and he's still got many, many years of his career ahead of him. And you, as, as I said, you wouldn't really expect him to hit his prime as such for, for a good few more years. So, um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a clever signing. I think, I mean, the price tag is pretty hefty. Um, and it's, it's maybe could be argued to be a bit of a risk. Um, given that it's, yeah, it's not guaranteed that it's a signing that will come off, but I think, in the position that Arsenal are in, it's a risk that you kind of want to be encouraging such a team to take because it's it's um, yeah high risk high reward I guess if if it does come off it could be you know a real masterstroke. In a year or so time, irrespective of how his time at Arsenal will go, what do you think will be the general? impression of Harvard's time at Chelsea looking back on it? Mm, that's a good question. I think, as I said earlier, I think it really kind of depends who you ask um, because Chelsea fans are an interesting bunch and I think um, lots of... There are some people who really, really love Havertz and think he's been just excellent throughout our whole his, his whole time at Chelsea, which I don't necessarily agree with. And there are other people who really hate him and say he's the worst striker who's ever existed, which I also definitely don't agree with. I, I'm somewhere in the middle. And I think um, he, I think overall, it will probably just be seen as someone who moved for £72 million while he was almost still a teenager um, and like came to the Premier League, came to the big stage, won the Champions League with his own goal, um, but ultimately still had a lot of developing to do and was probably not in the best environment for that to take place. Yeah. I, I think we did a, a reasonable job of sort of explaining Kai Havertz's time at Chelsea and how he might fit into the Arsenal team. Um, thank you very much to you, Orlando, for coming onto this podcast. I uh, really enjoyed our chat. Uh, where can My people pleasure. find you? Um, it's at... Oh, I always struggle with this saying it out loud. It's at Orlandino on Twitter, except the O is a zero and the I is a one. <laughs> Great. Uh, and your podcast work? Our podcast is The Chelsea Spot. If any Arsenal fans fancy a, a hate listen or, or something like that, then, then feel free. <laughs> they will certainly check it out after the two Arsenal wins next season. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the Podshot podcast. Uh, I'm Sebastian Hund. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Eulenberg underscore. Uh, you can also find this podcast on Twitter at PodshotPod. The music is made by James Blake and you can find that on Spotify. And be sure to check out the Scouted Football fundraiser, which is ending uh, relatively soon. If you are able to contribute uh, to very good independent writing, we would very much appreciate you doing so. Um, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>